Perhaps one of the greatest dangers that's facing the church today is an attack on the source of its authority, which is the very Word of God. Spiritual aloofness and coldness and just basic plain indifference to scriptural truth and to God's standard of righteousness pose serious risks to the church. Such apathy is usually denied with a self-deceptive sincerity, but it attacks the spirituality of the church. And all these things can weaken or disrupt or destroy the church by causing discord, disharmony, conflict, and division in the body of Christ. Paul expressed his concern of the sins that destroy unity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, he says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may find by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossips, arrogance, and disturbances. Isn't it great and so wonderful that we have none of that here at RHC? It is. You know, we wish. That's only in heaven. But how thankful we are. We do have a wonderful body here. We're thankful for that. Supposedly, the church at Philippi faced the danger of discord and division from the personal conflict between Euodia and Syntyche. And we can look in chapter 4, verse 2 of Philippians here. He says, I entreat Yodi and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So they were having some kind of uh, some kind of fallout, some kind of disharmony or disagreement. And disunity is a potential danger for every Christian church. It's a real danger that Paul addressed to some extent to every. Every letter of the churches that he wrote to Corinth, to Philippi, uh, to uh, Ephesus, to Thessalonica, all of them. And although sound teaching, moral purity, total commitment to the Lord and his work is a church's greatest desire, they alone cannot guarantee protection from disunity. Paul's sermon is not always just about doctrine or ideas, or Paul's concern, I'm sorry, is not about doctrines or ideas or practices that are clearly unbiblical. It is about standards, interests, preferences, and the like that are mostly matters of you and I's personal choice. Such issues should never be allowed to cause controversy in the body of Christ. To insist in our own way 
in such things is sinful and divides you and I as believers. It reflects pride and the lack of humility to promote our own personal agenda or view. As believers, we should never, of course, compromise, should we, on doctrines or principles that are clearly biblical, but to humbly defer to one another on secondary issues is a mark of spiritual strength, not weakness. True unity was manifested in the early church following Pentecost. You know, there was thousands of new believers there. They were from all different walks of life, the Jews and the Gentiles alike. And, uh, and in Acts 2, 42, 44, and 46, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. What? That must have been a, a, just a wonderful time. I would have loved to have been there. Uh, Paul, I'm not quite that old, Dill. Paul... <laughs> Paul counseled the Ephesian, the Ephesians, <coughs> Ephesians, uh, to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, in Ephesians 4.3. Diligent, translated, means making a persistent effort, something you'll have to work at a little bit. This is easily the greatest challenge of the spiritual leadership of any church. The church at Philippi was mostly theologically sound, uh, devoted, and they were moral, they, lo they were loving, kind, prayerful, and generous. Yet, it faced grave danger, often started, it, I'm sorry, it faced grave danger, often started by one or two people. Such people can stir up enough contention and strife that can fracture an entire congregation. How sad. Paul pleads with believers to constantly be on our guard against it. He had just expressed to the Philippians his hope to hear of them that they are standing in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Philippians 1.27, just back a few uh, verses here. And in chapters 2, 1 through 4, Paul gives what may be the most practical teaching about unity that we find in the New Testament. In these four verses, he gives us keys for spiritual unity that includes three necessary elements on which that unity must be built. Number one, the right motives. Number two, the right marks. And number three, the right means. First of all, we'll look at the right marks. I'm sorry, the right motives. <laughs> 
the right motives for spiritual unity. And we see this here in 2, 1, and 2a. And let's read this together. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. The first motive that we see is encouragement in Christ. This has the root meaning of coming alongside someone to give assistance or by offering comfort or counsel uh, or exhortation. It would be probably kind of like the uh, Good Samaritan uh, where, who exemplified who after doing everything he could for the robbed and beaten stranger, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you. And we see that in Luke 10, 35. Now that is, uh, that is true encouragement in Christ. That is true coming alongside someone and uh, helping in whatever way that we can. The most important and powerful encouragement in Christ comes where? Directly from the Holy Spirit. Basically, Paul's exhortation here is for the Philippians and all believers to conduct ourselves in a manner of the gospel of Christ, as we see in 127. And how is this accomplished? By standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. By being of one mind and one spirit shows that we are in union with Jesus Christ. Now the second motive that we find here is fellowship of the Spirit. This describes fellowship and mutual sharing. And this fellowship is intimate. It is close. Why? Well, because each one of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And he is a real guarantor of believers' eternal inheritance. We see that in Ephesians 1.13. He's the spiritual source of all spiritual power. Acts 1.8. He gives us the spiritual gifts. And we find that in Romans 12.6-8. And also is the source of our spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We as believers are to be filled with the Spirit. The proper response of us should be a compelling motivation to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit by pursuing peace. We want to always pursue peace by the Holy Spirit. The third motive is affection. And sympathy. Uh, sympathy could actually be translated compassion. Um, this word affection, which literally refers to the bowels, uh, which we've commonly used as the seat of our emotions, sometimes we talk about 
our gut, <laughs> feeling it in the gut. And, uh, you know, when, when something, when you really love someone, I mean, completely, you do, you, you have a feeling for them uh, that's deep and sincere. And it, it's wonderful. It's a, it's a feeling I have towards my wife. You know, it's a, it's a deep love in, <laughs> deep inside me. This can be used with a connection with a deep personal longing for a loved one, as I just suggested. I also have a sister that's 91 years old, and she lives back in Ohio, about 2,000 miles from here. And uh, my daughter Stephanie and I are going back to see her in October, Lord willing. And, you know, I, I have a really a deep longing to see her. Um, she, my father died when I was 14 years old, and uh, she's almost 18 years older than I am, so she actually became like a mother to me. And so I have a deep longing, affection for her. Uh, the Apostle Paul used this word in, in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, how I yearned for you with all affection of Christ Jesus. I love that word, yearned, longing. Sympathy or compassion, Paul uses it twice here. In Romans 12:1, he says, he pleads with believers by the mercies he uses here of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Also in 2 Corinthians 1:3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Also, Paul says in Colossians 3, 12a, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassion, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. There is an implied negative side to all three of these motivations. Failing to seek and to preserve spiritual unity does what? It weakens the local body of Christ. Even more so, failure to pursue unity is a sin. Like every other sin, that indifference is a violation of God's Revealed Word. Give me a little more. HTO. At the very beginning of verse 2, Paul adds a personal note and a personal desire of his. He says, complete my joy. <clears throat> to reward a faithful Servant of the Lord is a legitimate goal for you and I as believers to have. The New Testament makes it very clear that we are to love, to honor, to respect, and to appreciate our church leaders. Paul admonishes the, Thess the, Thessalon <laughs> the Thessalonians, we ask you, brothers, to repeat the to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you 
and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, he says. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, also the writer of, oh, that was 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, but also the writer of Hebrews commands, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give account. I don't know if you know, but the elders and the pastor will have to give an account for how we manage the church of God. So it is a tremendous responsibility laid upon the shoulders of those men. He also says, let them do this with joy, not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So you wouldn't want your elders or pastors to do this and, and groan and, and complain and carry on because we have to do it. That wouldn't be an advantage to any of us, to you or to us. It should be a joy and honor to love our church leaders as they are to shepherd the flock of God among us, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 1. We as church leaders, then, are to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I, I just love that part. Being examples to the flock. That's, I think, that's how that you can show the greatest, uh, be the greatest help, is to be an example to the flock. All this should be done in love and mercy, all to the glory of God. And now, in verse 2b, we will look at the right marks for spiritual unity. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. In this single verse, the Apostle Paul gives us four essential marks for spiritual unity. And the first is being of the same mind. Now, this literally means to think the same thing or to be like-minded. Uh, I don't know about you, but what a joy it is to be around those who are like-minded. It's, it's, it's such a joy and a, and a pleasure to be around brothers and sisters who are like-minded. But Paul is not necessarily talking about moral standards or doctrine, but in this context, being of the same mind, he is speaking about means to strive to achieve common understanding and agreement. A few verses later, Paul declares the only way to have such harmony 
is to have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, in verse 5. I have enjoyed many, many conversations with those whom I didn't always agree on every little jot and tittle, as uh, the King James puts it. <laughs> but because of our like-mindedness in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we could have a great fellowship and relationship. I didn't have to agree on every little thing. But the main thing on the gospel, yes. But because of that, I could have a wonderful time with them. Through God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can know the very mind of Christ because 1 Corinthians 12, 16 says, but we have the mind of Christ. Those who display a contrary or an obnoxious attitude, prove that they have set their minds on earthly things. In, in verse 19d and 20, 21a, it says, Paul, but our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorified body. We long for heaven. We long to see Jesus. We long to have glorified bodies, don't we? Yes, I can't wait. Yes. You know, just a few months ago when I was going through my radiation treatments, the, these, these verses up here came to mind in, in chapter 1, verse 21. It says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For I would rather depart and be with the Lord, which is far better. And my wife says, no, honey, not yet. Wait a little while. You're still needed here. And then I went and read verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And then it hit me. Yes? It's still more needed, maybe, that I stay. I don't feel that way about myself. But I do know I need others. And I know that they need me. And I'm thankful for that. I, I love you folks more than I can even express. We love you, Mark. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but what a joy it will be when we get to heaven and see our Savior face to face, the one who saved us by his grace, the one that leads us by the hand and takes us to the promised land. I can't, there again, can't wait. In Romans, Paul, in Romans, Paul adds some insights regarding being of the same mind. He says, first, we must not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who walk according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those of the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. In Romans 8, uh, 4 and 5. Paul also reminded the Colossians 
believers, he said, who set their mind on things of the earth rather than the things that are above in Colossians 3, 2. Yeah, Paul says there, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Also in Romans 12, 3, he says, we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We shouldn't. Because which is an erroneous, erroneous and really very prideful opinion. To think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's what we should think. The second mark of spiritual unity is having the same love. This is an interesting part here. This is to love one another equally. And we might ask, how in the world can we love one another equally when we're not all the same? On a pure emotional level, this is an impossibility. Because we are not all equally created. Some of us are just easier to love. <laughs> Some are a little bit more easier to get along with. It's just the bottom line. It's always been that way, it always will be. But agape love, however, is the love of our will, not preference or attraction. Agape love is God's love, loving like God. In Romans 12.10, I love this verse, it says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. <laughs> if we would always just love each other like that, with that type of affection, and try to outdo one another in, in showing honor and, and good deeds, oh, what a, what a lovely... <laughs> I think everybody would want to be here, wouldn't they? First John 3.14, he says, We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. I think Phil and I was talking about that this morning a little bit. Whoever does not love abides in death. In other words, if your life is not filled with a measure of agape love for other believers in Christ's body, this shows that there is a lack of true salvation, maybe. If we really, truly uh, have agape love in our hearts, it's going to show forth. It will show forth in the salvation of our souls. Genuine love manifests itself in sacrificially doing what? Serving the body. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is a question each one of us needs to ask ourselves. Is that how I love? Do I love to the point where I'm willing to 
lay down my life for my brother or sister? By this, this may cost us. May cost us our money. May cost us our life. And by this we know love, in verse 60, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Minds governed by selfless humility overflows with genuine agape love for our fellow believers. Being self-centered, I always want my own way type of thinking, causes discord, which stems always from a lack of love. It can just about always come down to a lack of love. A third mark we find is being in full accord, or as the NASB puts it, being united in spirit. Basically, it means one-souled. Now, that sounds pretty much knit together, doesn't it? Being one-souled. Uh, this excludes selfishness, hatred, jealousy, envy, and many other evils that are the fruit of the love of self. Like every other Christian virtue we possess, being in full accord must always be grounded in the Word of God. Such unity involves deep passion for our God, for His Word, and for the Gospel. There is not any two of us here today or any of us believers, no matter our years of spiritual maturity, or Bible knowledge will understand everything exactly the same. There's some things where we just have to kind of love one another well enough to just be able to get along. I know there's some when it comes to eschatology. <laughs> Phil knew I was going to bring that up. Where we may have a little disagreement. But you know, that's okay. That's okay. Because in the long run, it's, it's going to work out in God's timing, in God's way. None of us know for sure. I have a, a fairly strong view myself, but at the same time, I do not want to push my view at all because I don't think that's necessary. I don't think it would be helpful. However, if our lives are controlled by the Holy Spirit, by humility and love, agape love, we will be in full accord. We should never allow marginal differences to divide or hinder our service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Never. Sometimes it happens, but it should not. A fourth mark of spiritual unity is of one mind. You know, as I read this, I thought, no, wait a minute here. We said being of the same mind. 
and now it says, and of one mind. Um, the NASB puts it this way, it uses an intent on one purpose. And I really kind of like that, uh, intent on one purpose. It means basically thinking the same thing or be like-minded, uh, which is really the same thing as of the same mind, which we covered earlier. Uh, we find that these four principles actually to overlap, uh, complement, and are inseparable to one another. In Colossians 3, uh, 12 through 16, uh, and I think we'll read all this if you wanted to turn there, Colossians 3, 12 through 16, Paul beautifully summarizes these four marks of spiritual unity. And I just want to read them all together. As we read them, let's stop and think of each one as we come across them. Paul says, put on then. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, how as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Wow. Wow. If you and I would truly live out these verses, there would always be spiritual unity in our church here at RHC. Always. Couldn't help but be. The right means for spiritual unity is next. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As we view these five means, we see the answer of how spiritual unity is maintained. There are three, there are, three are negatives and two are positives. It is not surprising then that selfish ambition, or really pride, is the first on the list, as it is the root of all sin. By placing his will above God's, Satan fell in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. And I'm going to turn there and read that. I didn't jot that down or type that up, so I'll just turn uh, there here quickly. Isaiah 12. Wait a 
Isaiah 14, I'm sorry, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will descend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Satan fell. And it was by placing their own wills above God's that Adam and Eve fell and brought sin into the world, as we see in Genesis chapter 3. Selfishness has been the forefront of every sin following Adam and Eve. It's been there ever since. Selfish ambition is to be eliminated totally from our innermost thoughts of our heart. We find it often to be displayed in a person who continually seeks personal advantage and gain, regardless of the effect it has on others. We've all been around someone like that, and this only brings disharmony and conceit. And strife. John MacArthur quotes No church, even the most doctrinally sound, spiritual mature, is immune from the threat of this sin. And nothing can more quickly divide and weaken a church. Selfish ambition is often clothed in pious rhetoric by those who are convinced of their superior abilities in promoting the cause of Christ, end quote. That's in your bulletin. Well, he nailed it. He nailed it. James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The second means is conceit. And conceit destroys spiritual unity, doesn't it? When someone's conceited, if I'm conceited, it destroys spiritual unity. The King James Version, again, calls this vain glory. Vain glory. It refers to a highly exaggerated view of oneself or it seeks personal glory. This person considers himself always to be right and expects others to always agree with him. And the only unity that he seeks is centered around himself. And I don't think we want that kind. In Galatians... Chapter 6, verse 3, Paul gives us a good example. He says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. <laughs> I, I really love that verse. 
It really hits it, doesn't it? For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, <laughs> he deceives himself. Yeah. It's too many times maybe we get the thinking a little bit too highly of ourselves when really we're nothing. Nothing without Christ. We must each be on guard of this deceptive sin of conceit because it's all around us. It is. It's Satan. He uses anything he can to try to destroy or to cause disharmony in the body. He doesn't care how he does it. Or a family. Or a church. It's just what he does. The third means of promoting spiritual humility, we see, I'm sorry, the third means of promoting spiritual unity is humility. And this is really the very bedrock of our Christian character, isn't it? Humility. This refers to lowliness of mind. It's a complete opposite of our culture today where we're told, you're great in your own eyes, really. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you build yourself up. You need more health, more self-esteem, or you deserve it. Do we? What we really deserve is, you know, is hell, really. Only because of Jesus Christ, we're not going there. Praise the Lord. This person sees it is a stark contrast of selfish ambition and pride, isn't it? This person sees himself lower than others and finds his worth and strength only in Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.13, Paul exclaims, he says, I can do all things through him, Christ, who gives me strength, who strengthens me. That's where we find our strength. We find it in Christ. Uh, how thankful we are for that. There are many examples of humility in the Old Testament. Moses was very humble. In Numbers 2.3, says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were before him on the face of the earth. David said in Psalms 138.6, For the Lord is high. He regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Psalms 37.11, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. See the contrast there? Pride, disgrace, humble, wisdom. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5 and 6, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, 
under the mighty hand of God so that after the proper time he may exalt you. If you and I truly clothe ourselves with humility, selfishness, pride, and conceit will not be active in our lives. It'll be gone. If we truly clothe ourselves, wrap ourselves with humility, wrap ourselves with peace and love and affection, Genuine humility causes us to count others more significant than yourselves, here it says. This means that we are not to excel, we are not to surpass, or think ourselves superior to others or someone else. We as believers know far more about our own hearts, don't we, than anyone else. I know I do about mine. And sometimes what I see is not what I wished I saw. <laughs> Knowing the sin of our own hearts should eliminate any boasting and any self-exaltation. If Paul viewed himself, this is interesting, as the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle... 1 Corinthians 15, 9, the very least of the saints in Ephesians 5, 8, and even the worst of sinners in 1 Timothy 1, 15, then how in the world could any of us then think of ourselves in any higher view? I, I don't know how, if we really look at Paul and how, I mean, he saw himself as just the, the lowest uh, not even fit to be called an apostle, said, and the worst of sinners even. Maybe it is time for us to right now look inside our own hearts and take a, a gander, take a, take a look there and see what dwells there. Is that really humility of mind and heart? A fourth means for promoting spiritual unity is a negative admonition. Here he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. It appears Paul's point here relates mostly, though not completely, to our own personal interests. Problems arise in the church when we as believers promote our own interest in ministry many times at the expense of someone else. Some may think, well, what I am doing is the most important. Uh, I'm taking out the garbage. Uh, or, and what you're doing is of lesser value to the body of Christ. If that is our attitude, the possibility for conflicts are almost endless, aren't they? Yeah, almost always. The best interests of the Lord and others are sacrificed all because of me satisfying me, all contrary to the Word of God. Have you ever been in a situation where an honest discussion on the understanding of certain doctrine or moral issue was taking place? I think we probably all have. This is good and it's important, but these discussions or debates 
should always be carried out in humility and respect of each other. However, many, many times problems arise when defense of God's word, it becomes clouded by our own opinions, our own personal interests. And again, John MacArthur. And I quote, when supreme virtue is self-love and supreme purpose in life is self-fulfillment, mutual respect is replaced by disrespect, mutual service by apathy and indifference, and mutual love by enmity and hatred. Again, he nailed it. Oh, how many times, I hate to even admit this, but in my younger days, as a younger Christian, where I felt certain doctrine or certain theology that I held to was the only way. And I would declare it to the point where I would actually put others down. I remember uh, in my family, uh, I, was, I grew up in Ohio, and my family, which I was taught, they believed that you could fall from grace, you could lose your salvation. And as I become more knowledgeable of the word out here, I started to see that no, we cannot lose our salvation. Once we have eternal life, no man can pluck them, me out of our Father's hand, Jesus says. We're his. Once you've given your life to Christ, he will hold you to the end. But I remember trying to push, uh, you know, they believed in salvation by grace, but they just felt like you could... You could somehow, you could do something, you could lose that salvation. And I would, I would actually get into arguments basically with them, trying to, I felt like I had to show them. And, uh, but by so doing, I actually probably hurt them. I probably hurt their, stepped on their toes, I mean, in a way that maybe I shouldn't have. I think I could have been kind, the Bible says, Second uh, Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort um, with patience and teaching, patience and teaching. Well, when we start to put others down, then, then why, why did I do that? Why? I asked myself. Probably because I wanted them to know that my way really was the right way. It's what the Bible taught. And, and yes, there was a way to go around about that. I needed to tell them about that. But I needed to do it in more of a loving, kinder manner. And I say, shame on me. What did I gain by pushing my personal view or interests on them? Probably nothing. The only thing I really gained was self-fulfillment and maybe disrespect, that's all. So let us each be so careful how we treat others, not to look only to our own interests, 
but to the interests of others. I don't, maybe that's not really a good example. I don't want to relay the, uh, the opinion that we, don't want, we do want to share with people the Bible and what the Bible teaches, definitely. That is the Word of God. But I don't know. It's, it's how we go about it, I think, so many times. We need to do so in love, in humility. Humility. God, uh, praise the Lord, has little by little been able to knock off some of the sharp edges in my life, and usually by through trials and troubles, and praise God. The fifth and final means for promoting spiritual unity is of a positive nature. He says, but also looking out for the interests of others. I love that. This shows us a very strong Christian principle, one that's always looking out for the other person. Like the others, this principle is related primarily to relationships with, between believers, especially maybe those working together in ministry. Like the other principles mentioned, looking out for the interest of others is necessary for spiritual unity and for growth. This requires each one of us in the body of Christ to put the other first, to love one another with sincere hearts unconditionally. Did you hear that? Unconditionally. Unconditional love. Love, that's agape love. Beloved, this seems easy to understand, yet so hard for us to apply. As we meditate on looking to the interests of others, it requires us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep in Romans 12, 15. To continually pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. To not eat meat or drink wine or do anything which causes a brother to stumble and to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and to just please ourselves in Romans 14, 19, and 21, and finally in 15, 1, we are to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. I hope this morning that um, these motivations, the right motives, the right marks, and the right means for spiritual unity has helped us to see the value and desire it so that our body will be in, in, in oneness, in unity, that we will love each other completely. In conclusion, conclusion, what more can I say? I think as I sat back in my study this week, and I thought, and I meditated, and I let the Holy Spirit of God work on my own heart, I finally come to this conclusion, that the only way that you and I, or I, can totally live out this sermon to the glory of God is to do what the Apostle Paul says in verse 5. 
He says, have this mind be among you, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind be among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. 